right, uh, welcome again to the Paperless Federalist. I'm Kerry. I'm Justin. And today we are going to be uh, looking at Federalist Paper Number One by Alexander Hamilton. And uh, Justin, if you can, uh, if you can just give us a brief summation of uh, what is Federalist Number One about in five minutes. Uh, five minutes or less, not a problem. Uh, October twenty seventh, seventeen eighty seven. Uh, Federalist Number One was published. Uh, it was written by Alexander Hamilton to the uh, people of New York. Um, this is his opening salvo. Uh, as we'd mentioned in the introductory po- uh, episodes of this podcast, um, Federalist Number One was was the start of a response by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay to the Anti-Federalist Papers, uh, as well as uh, public relations campaign, so to speak. Uh, to raise awareness for their efforts and to uh, convince uh, the people not only of New York but maybe also some of the other states to ratify uh, the new constitution that came out of the Constitutional Convention uh, in September 1787. That being said, um, Hamilton wastes no time uh, when he starts this. and he, There's a, uh, an opening salvo uh, in the first, first paragraph um, and let me see if I can find it, and uh, I'll read a snippet from the from the first paragraph of the Fellows paper. Uh, it says, The subject speaks of its own importance, comprehending in its own consequence nothing less than the existence of the Union, the safety and welfare of the parts of which it is composed, the fate of an empire, in many respects, the most interesting in the world. He continues, It is frequently... Uh, it has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. And he continues on then and he goes over uh, and he's really pointing out there that uh, the opportunity for a people to decide what form of government they will have uh, up to this point in history um, when he's writing this is is extremely rare and that this is this is the type of decision that can affect not only their future but potentially the future of the world the future of mankind uh, it is not to be taken lightly and the gravity he attempts to establish right off the bat uh, he goes on in the paper then and he recognizes that there's and he gets into this conversation of bias um, and he, he goes on and he says, you know, it'd be nice if, if, if everyone was basically altruistic and, and, but recognizes that's, that's probably wishful thinking. He has a conversation where he lays out the biases. He talks about biases from people on the other side of the argument. He recognizes his own bias, uh, and he frames the debate and he says, you know, at the end of the day, the bias does not matter. What matters is whether or not the argument and the truth of the argument, and if it'll stand up under its own merits. He recognizes that there are going to be good people on both sides of this debate, um, and that if you are so tied up with your own viewpoint that you can't recognize that there are some people on the other side um, that are good, uh, that maybe you should moderate your own opinion a bit and take a step back. Uh, and he's really, though, he, he says that he himself has made up his own mind, uh, that he has uh, come to his conclusion, and he's not going to hide that from the reader um, of, of the remaining papers that he intends to publish that he that the purpose of these papers is to convince people to ratify the constitution uh that you and i now know um and then he leaves he 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 sets out a framework uh at the end uh of the paper which i had mentioned before he lists lists out the various uh subject matters that he intends to tends to address uh and he closes with them saying that in case you missed our other episodes uh, he lays out the framework of the subsequent papers he intends uh, to hit in the following order. The utility of the Union to your political prosperity, the insufficiency of the present Confederation to preserve that Union, the necessity of a government at least equally energetic with the one proposed to the attainment of this object, the conformity of the proposed Constitution to the true principles of Republican government, its analogy to your own state Constitution, and lastly, the additional security which its adoption will afford to the preservation of that species of government to liberty and to property. And those are the highlights uh, of the intended subject 
or subset. That's basically a table of contents for the Federalist Papers. And the subsequent papers are going to fall, he intended at the time, into those various uh, subsections. Um, he gets a little off track towards the end, um, or they, I should say, get a little off track towards the end and don't necessarily stick to this exact framework, but for the most part, they do. Uh, I think that is a, a pretty much a good... Uh, yeah, that's a pretty me, good summation. You know. That's uh, uh, you know that's really the, the core of the content there. Um, <clears throat> some things I got out of it as well. You know, I think I've uh, mentioned before in the uh, prequel sort of video that uh, I felt like this first Federalist paper was a bit of a uh, table of contents type aspect. And to me... The explicit things he says about like oh I'm gonna we're, we're writing these Federalist Papers here's what it's gonna be about to me that's the less exciting part of the paper. What I think is the most interesting to me of what he does here is what he says between the lines. I mean uh, that is really fascinating, interesting to me as far as like the tone and the spin from the very beginning. He puts on this this uh, this act like oh here I am you know hands you know. Car, with uh, fan, cards on the table. Cards on the table, exactly. Cards on the table here, you know, going to be open and frank with you, but that's not what he's doing at all. I, to me, the tone of this that I thought was brilliant for Hamilton was, this reminds me of nothing so much as the, uh, not to try to be too highbrow here, but uh, what Shakespeare wrote in Julius Caesar, the eulogy of Julius Caesar by Mark Anthony, where... You know, Mark Anthony gets up, the people have murdered Caesar, and he gets up and says, Hey, I'm just here, I'm not tell you to, here to tell you how bad those guys are, I'm just here to bury Caesar. But then he, like, lists out all the way they're bad, and all the way that uh, Caesar was so good. You know, Caesar was going to give you guys a bunch of money, but I'm sure they had a good reason to kill him, and they're like, what? Mm-hmm. And he, sort of same thing here. Hamilton's going through, and he's like, you know, all these people that are against the Constitution you know, it's not their fault they're bad guys or they don't care much about democracy as much as they care about their cushy jobs in the state governments that they're in or they can't help the fact that they think they're wise but they're really a bunch of idiots. But they're really good guys. I mean, I think that's the most interesting part. He's really laying the groundwork and they're a bunch of fools. I think I realize the part that you're referencing here. um, uh, Third paragraph down in the Fairless Number 1, Hamilton writes... Among the most formidable of the obstacles which the new Constitution will have to encounter may readily be distinguished the obvious interest of a certain class of men in every state to resist all changes which may hazard a diminution of their power, annulment, and consequences of the offices they hold under the state establishments, and the perverted ambition of another class of men who will either hope to aggrandize themselves by the confusions of their country, or will flatter themselves with the fairer prospects of elevation from the subdivision exactly. of the empire into several partial confeder- confederacies. So what he's basically saying there is, yeah. again, on the surface, oh, you know, there's a loyal opposition, there's decent guys, but yeah, to break it down in, in, in plain language, he's saying, look, a lot of the people who you're going to be hearing from who are against this constitution yeah. are number one. They have cushy jobs, cushy and powerful jobs in the state governments. You know, yeah. they might be the governor of Virginia or a real high-ranking person in the Massachusetts the state, state government. And the state governments are very powerful. And if there's a powerful national government, they'll be less powerful. And they don't yeah. like that. No. Or, again, we touched on in the uh, the introductory podcast of how if you're a more powerful state, you might think if there's no central government to hold me back, you know, and I'm a powerful man in this powerful state. We can start to, you know, go after some of these smaller states and get things from them, you know. So again, it's just power politics, and then so those are his first two areas, and then yes. later down, and, down and, into and the to address. And people again, in, in, in case this is the first time you're tuning into one of our podcasts, um, and you missed the intro podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. But the, the, the one of the things we touched touched on is when we say states, you got to keep in mind at this point in history, the 13 states which make up the fledgling uh, United States of America. Um, were, were states in the sense of, of almost like nation states. Yeah, they were sort of. I mean, they were they were loosely nations. loosely grouped. It's a loose grouping of nations under the Articles of Confederation, mm-hmm. which predated the U.S. Constitution, and so they have a lot of autonomy, a lot of authority. And we talked about the problems that rose when they were uh, uh, levying taxes amongst them each uh, each other uh, or tariffs essentially uh, between the states and having small dust ups and 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 and. Uh, um, as far as uh, 
you know, rebellions yeah, in the states. It's almost and, as if, I mean, a great, a, a better analogy than like what we mentioned in the past about about the EU. A better analogy might be in the modern age, uh, NATO. Yeah. You know, NATO is a military alliance between a lot of independent countries. I mean, imagine how people in NATO would react if all the leaders of NATO said, hey, we're doing so great as a military alliance, we should just become one country together and give up our individual power and yeah. all become the country of NATO. Yeah. I mean, people would freak out, probably. And, you <laughs> I, know, think I think so. that's the <laughs> NFL's position. So. But there's one last classification of people I wanted to highlight in addition to the people who have power already or want the... Uh, they think their states are so powerful they might be winners. And those third class of people um, is just like... Good people who are just clueless, you mm-hmm. know, because I think they, Hamilton and the other Federalists acknowledge that there are some people of such great stature that they're not going to be able to tar and feather them as being enemies of democracy. Like people like Patrick Henry, who was a prominent anti-Federalist. Okay. It's going to be harder to say Patrick Fe- Henry hates America. Yeah. But <laughs> those people who, you know, they are against it, you could say, well, he's a good person, but he just doesn't know any better. He's just wrong on this. When he so tries to say... You know, he just doesn't understand, you know, diminishing him without villainizing and demonizing him. Mm -hmm. And so this is, I think, where you're referring where Hamilton talks and says, So numerous indeed and so powerful are the causes which serve to give a false bias to the judgment that we upon many occasions see wise and good men on the wrong side. Uh, on the wrong as well as the right side of a question of the first magnitude to society. That's that's exactly correct. I think Hamilton is doing a great job at the beginning of... You know, in in military history and strategy and whatnot, they often talk about uh, how, you know, a great way to make sure you win a battle is choose the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And here what uh, Hamilton's doing is he's choosing the battlefield. He's sort of saying ahead of time, even though he's not first out of the gate, that we've already talked about anti-federalists got the papers out first, but he's basically preparing the audience for, look, anyone who's against this, con- this Constitution, they're one of these type of bad people and you shouldn't listen to them because of this. You know, they just either don't know what they're talking about or they have bad motives. Even though then he turns around and says, you could be a good person and still disagree with us. When you get down to brass tacks, he seems to undercut that. I mean, do you, what do you think? Do you agree? Totally. I, I mean, I, I think you've, you've, you've said it quite well there. Right? Um, you know, what, did, what do you make of this next? Or a little bit later, he, there's a line in here that uh, I know it's often quoted. I just want to get your take on it where it says, you know, for in politics as in religion, it is equally absurd to aim to take aim at making a proselytes by fire and sword. Heresies in either can really be cured by persecution. Well, I think he's trying to play to his strengths. I mean, him, uh, Madison, John Jay, uh, you know, they're all, you know, again, men of the enlightened days, the Renaissance. They're, they're great debaters. They're intelligent men. Uh, they're intelligent people. And so what... The anti-federalists had on their. I think what they perceived that the anti-federalists had on their side was it was they had more the the Shades Rebellion crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the people who were the 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 frontier farmers, the uh, the people of the land, the non-trades class who were probably more numerous. Mm-hmm. And if push comes to shove, you know, and if it became a uh, an armed fight about who got to choose the form of government, you know, probably the. People out that group of people would outnumber and outgun the people who were making porcelain and silver yeah. in the cities. So yeah, but the other thing, though, I think is is he's trying to to undercut what he anticipates is going to be an anti-federalist argument that they're going to come back at him and basically say the sky is falling. These guys went to amend the Articles of uh, Confederation and they're coming back with this whole new proposition. And, and his suggestion here is saying, look, you know, in politics as well as religion, you know, uh, it's basically absurd to, to um, you know, make these claims that the sky is falling. Heresies neither can rarely be cured by, by persecution, and it's equally absurd to take aim um, at making proselytes by fire and sword. You know? I can see that. I, you know? I can see where he started making the argument, because, yeah, the argument could be made that, the Articles of Confederation were intended to be perpetual, so you can't just take a vote to say this doesn't, this government doesn't apply yeah. anymore. The only way to change it is armed rebellion. And he's sort of saying, no, we we're the demo- we are the people, we have the power to change our informed government. And to the people in that time period, that could be a very powerful plea because the majority of them came out of that 
tradition of British history mm-hmm. where they had this brutal civil war. So it could be a wink and a nod to us saying, look, we don't have to have some kind of brutal civil war again to change our form of government. We're rational people. We can make rational decisions. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. But then he goes, but yet, you know, that's exactly what's going to happen. He's, he's, you know, uh, and yet, however... Where do you see that? Well, I think he continues on. He goes, and, and yet, however, just these sentiments will be allowed. And we have already sufficient indications that it will happen in this, as in all former cases of great national discussion, and a torrent of angry and malignant passions will be let loose. And so he's, he's forecasting, and he's saying, you know... We're going to hear it. We're going to hear it from these anaphalists, and they're going to come I, at us. I differ from you there in that I think that he's trying to limit the. He's trying to limit early what we just talked about. I think he's trying yeah. to limit it to a verbal confrontation. Oh, and I, and no, and I agree it's a verbal confrontation. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, he he's saying like we shouldn't do this, but this is what's going to happen. They're going to come he, back at us, and they're going to argue. I think what he says is going to happen yeah. is just. I think again that's him spinning. And him trying to characterize the arguments from the other side. Exactly. He's trying as to frame being a bunch of unreasonable crazy people. Yep. Whereas he's going he's calm and reasoned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I just again, keeping with my theme of throwing rocks at the Federalists whenever possible, mm-hmm. um, he really I feel like he really screws up and get has a major gaffe right at the very beginning when he talks about the United States being an empire. <laughs> I mean, uh that's one where it's like one of those, watching one of those press conferences where someone says maybe something they mean, and mm-hmm. then they wish they hadn't said it because it was just sounds really bad. Uh, okay. Yeah. And he talks about how the U.S. is this is a great empire, mm-hmm. and that word empire, you know, that carries a particular meaning. Mm-hmm. And for for our listeners here in the very first paragraph, uh, Hamilton writes: the subject speaks of its own importance, comprehending in its consequence nothing less than the existence of the union. The safety and welfare of the parts of which it is composed, the fate of the empire in many an respects, empire. the fate of an empire. Thank you. It's in, not the Star Wars. Empire, in many it's exp- just an empire. in many respects, the most interesting in the world. Uh, and so he refers, he does refer to the union at the time as being an empire. An empire. And I don't think that's an accident. Well, it might be an accident that they said it, but I think that's revealing as to Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton is one of the great founding fathers. He, you know, he he later did a lot of wonderful things. as head of the treasury, you know, uh, it'd be a different country without him. And he really represents a strain of thought in our country as far as, you know, central power. But um, he is sort of the diametric opposite of the decentralized power movement represented by someone like Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And supporting that is, I didn't know this until we you know sat down and started doing reading research about this. I didn't know that um, prior to the... Uh, you know George Washington, you know, the passage of the Constitution, and George Washington becoming president. Alexander Hamilton actually sent, wrote a letter to the King of Prussia, inviting him to be the King of America as well. So, uh, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> seriously, it's, it, check it out. And well, if not, I'm going to get to a massive uh, correction on that. But yeah, <laughs> in the time of chaos between okay. the Revolution and and the passage of the uh, Constitution. You know, he he just thought that America was falling apart and they needed a king to come over and take over. And so, uh, sent a letter to, uh, to to Prussia asking for a king to come over and take over. Um, wow. So, you know, it's, Hamlet has always represented a more uh, centralized power, uh, unified power in the national government uh, perspective in American political thought. But, uh, you know, he goes further in that direction than I'd realized. But... In making the statement of empire, anti-federalists they really pick it up. I mean, in in right away in anti-federalist one and two, they talk about uh, how so, so, but no, dangerous no, it is. And one, an and, one and two, one and two anti-federalists published were published prior to federalist number one. Oh, you're right. Correction on that. So, they, they don't address it yet. They address it later on. Okay. In later on, later federal anti-federalist. Uh, um, Articles. That's yeah. correct. But they, you say eventually they pick up this idea that he mentions empire. And, it becomes a running theme. And they, that, they let him hear about it. Yeah. Basically. Is that, you know, they sort of lock on to this idea that uh, Hamilton is trying to create an empire in the old European model. And that seemed to be a dangerous thing, you know, of where is this going to lead? Are we going, we spent, fought this war to be free of an empire. Yeah. <laughs> This uh, monarchical form of monarchical yeah. form of government, mm-hmm. and are, why are we going back to what we just fought to be against? Mm-hmm. Um, and as a as an aside, yes, um, 
Love That's a lot less relevant to history, but I found it amusing. Okay. Lay it out to us. I like how he refers to uh, the Amer- America as not just an empire, but the most imp- interesting empire in the world. What does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. Is he like shilling for Dos Equis or something? <laughs> you know? What does it mean to be an interesting empire? Not always an empire. <laughs> but when I do... I don't always like to perform to set up an agrarian empire, but when I do, I prefer Dos Oxen is my method of plowing fields. There you go. Uh, I mean, it just sounds like an interesting empire. Not powerful, not rich, not democratic, but interesting. It's like we won the Miss Congeniality Award of empires. We're not particularly the winner, but we're interesting. I just don't find it amusing. No, that's true. It's true. You know, and but continuing on, like this idea with him forecasting and saying, "Hey, this is what these anti-federalists are going to say to you guys," um, and, and he goes, "You know, or sorry, an enlightened zeal for the energy and efficiency of government will be stigmatized as the offspring of a temper fond of despotic power and hostile to the principles of liberty." And there, I think he's saying, you know, well, I mean, it kind of speaks for itself that he's saying, "Oh, you know, people are going to confuse our, you know." And he pats himself on the back, enlightened, enlightened zeal uh, for government, uh, and they're going to come around and tell you that really we're, we're a bunch of would-be despots. And and he's right there <laughs> as far as like yeah. that's what he's responding to because anti-federalist number one was titled uh, you know as a warning of uh, a, a warning of a dangerous plan uh, of arist- aristocratic combinations and basically in federal anti-federalist one which. Hamilton is responding to uh, the writer of that Anna Federal's paper basically talks about how you know this whole constitution's coming about by the fact that there is a bunch of relatively wealthy and powerful people who they're trying to cram this constitution down the throats of everybody for their own interests you know and they're they want to lock in their power as the head of this new powerful federal government and that's their real motive and I'll tell you, there there's an argument to be made um, in favor of that, uh, you know, because a Senate could say, well, look at Hamilton. You know, Hamilton is a part of the the, uh, the elected, the legislature of the state of New York. Mm-hmm. But Hamilton is obviously a very intelligent and ambitious man. And, you know, being the head of the legislature of New York, well, it's an important field. It's nothing like being... In the King's Court in England, or something like that, yep. you know, a, you know, some a real high position of authority. Look at Hamilton's you know, position of power and authority before and after the Constitution. You know, before the Constitution, he's a relatively minor player, but then after the Constitution, he's the head of the Treasury. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and he is, along with Thomas Jefferson, at, has the ear of the president throughout eight years. Um, and so, well, not eight years; he got you know, assassinated, but uh, he got killed. But um, <laughs> Up until when he was killed, somebody finally actually <laughs> shoots someone in a duel. <laughs> he was he was less effective to an advi- as an advisor mm-hmm. after he was killed. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Being killed as but limits again, one's effectiveness. You're right. Under the Constitution, a federal government is much more powerful. And mm-hmm. so, if you were an ambitious person who wanted to pos- pursue a position of power and authority, if you felt you were shut out. Um, from a position of power in state government, mm-hmm. in a powerful state, after the under the Articles of Confederation, you're sort of hitting the reset button with the Constitution, and you have yeah. a all new opportunity to get yourself into a position of being again like a founding father, which exactly. is you you go from framing the argument to framing a government and and, mm-hmm. and writing writing if you're the author of the government or one of the co-authors of the government, mm-hmm. you can you can write in your position. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean. If the that you you mentioned in, uh, I think it was episode zero B. What you know, we're talking about context. You mentioned what would happen to, have happened in America, if the Constitution had never become law, and we were under the Articles of Confederation. What would have happened to Alexander Hamilton if there was never an Annapolis Convention, if we never called a constitutional convention to uh, pass the Constitution? Would we even know who Alexander Hamilton is? Mm-hmm. I mean, he would just be a legislature, a legislator from the state of New York. We wouldn't know who he is. It's because of the Constitution that we he is cited now by Supreme mm-hmm. Court justices. So I just think that it's you know, um, great as Alexander Hamilton is, 
some of the arguments made against the Federalists, you can see how they got, got some traction with yeah. the people in different states. Yes. And so uh, Hamilton here towards towards the... Uh, oh, I don't know. Lost track of which paragraph. But it's it's towards... It's the same paragraph where, where my last quote had come from. We're talking about this zeal. He goes on, he writes... He kind of sets the stage. And he, he does a bit of a head fake here. Mm-hmm. Where he talks about it. He says, well, on one hand, you know, it will be forgotten on one hand that jealousy is the usual concomitant of love and that the noble enthusiasm of liberty is apt to be infected with the spirit of narrow and illiberal distrust. But then he gets to his real point. That on the other hand, it will be equally forgotten that the vigor of government is essential to the security of liberty. That in the contemplation of a sound and well-informed judgment, their interests can never be separated. And that a dangerous ambition more often lurks behind this specious mask of zeal for the rights of people than under the forbidden appearance of zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. And there he's saying, you know, I'm being criticized and people are saying, oh, watch out for that strong federal government because they're going to be, you know, next thing you know, you're going to be ruled and oppressed by them. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, no, no, no. And really, you know, the, the, the despots start by arguing for, oh, I'm a person of the people. And, yeah. you know, watch out for all the enemies of the people. And then they have a feign... Um, uh, right. uh, 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 you know uh, that they're they're constantly you know looking out for the interests and the liberties of the little person, uh, so to speak, or the, the underrepresented, um, and that's and they 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 uh, gather them together under this defender of liberty. But in reality, and he's saying, and it's it's Hamilton's theory that he's claiming that usually those are the sources of oppression, not a well-run, well-efficient. Just normal government. I mean, if you speak <laughs> about arguments that are as old as our country itself, there is almost no more fundamental one than this as to what is more dangerous if it gets out of control, a powerful sense of government, a powerful central government, or the un, or the populist mob unrestrained. Mm-hmm. That, seen, that, that really, those ideas are at the core of the anti-federalist and the federalist arguments of... The Federalists argue that, you know, right coming right after this, you know, to dangerous incident of Shays Rebellion where the people rose up and almost destroyed everything, as they would say it. Mm-hmm. You know, my God, we need a stronger federal government. We need to have an army. To, so this doesn't have to. So one, mm-hmm. they don't have to rise up because things will be run better and more efficiently. Yeah. And two, if there is chaos that we could keep order and keep this government from being toppled. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Jeffersonian type idea of, you know, the decentralized power and the, you know, hands power in the hands of the people and the, the lower levels, you know, you know, th- that argument is, it has equal strength as far as like, look, you know, the power, the government could become so powerful that the people are closed out of it. And I think that Hamilton uh, is a little bit conclusory in his reasoning here. He sort of seems to say, well, one is obviously always worse than the other. Yeah. When, I guess in my mind, both can be dangerous I think if they go too far. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a rule of thumb that you can always say central power is always more dangerous or populism is always more dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, either can go too far. Now, granted, we've had the benefit of another couple hundred years plus of history to look mm-hmm. upon and draw upon, but it's not like Hamilton was was a simpleton. Uh, yeah. I think he should be able to he's recognize... Like, he's choosing the battlefield again. He, yeah, he's again. basically in the context of telling yeah. people ahead of time, again, these people are, are just appealing to the unwashed, uneducated masses. Mm-hmm. Watch out for them. We are the people who... We just want good government. That's his message. We just want good government. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's interesting. Again, you're right. It's, a, it's an interesting point he makes. But I think he is uh, he's finessing his reasoning a little bit on what's more dangerous. But on the topic of good government, though, that really segues nicely. And when you talk about avoiding things that avoiding frightening dangers that could be, and one of them is, you know, rebellion. Mm-hmm. What could destroy the country and destroy everybody? Uh, and and that's a real theme that Hamill tries to address. We're just trying to keep you safe. We're just trying to make a get better government. Mm-hmm. I feel like there he's tasked, he's sort of responding to Anna Federalist too. Uh, you know the, the title of that one is we've been you know we've been told of phantoms, and the theme of that one is Anna Federalist two, which again came right before Federalist one. It talks about how oh the Federalists are just trying to scare you. They're trying to talk about all these dangers that unless we form a federal government, that a strong we, a stronger federal a strong government. federal government. Yeah. Good point. A strong yeah. federal government 
that we are going to be destroyed by all these dangers around us. And Anti-Federalist 2 basically runs down all these dangers that seem to be in the air around that time. And mostly they talk about foreign relations. Uh, most of it is talking about how the United States owes all kinds of money to different countries. France, uh, Holland, Spain, and you know we need to form this, form this stronger federal government so we can collect federal money to pay these people back so they don't come and invade us or do mm-hmm. something else nasty to us so you know they stay our friends and not you know come in and uh, do something harmful to us or just so that they continue to trade with us right i mean why would you trade with somebody who constantly owes you money well you sort of get into the anti-federalist argument which yeah. is the anti-federalists just sort of say ah it's all right yeah. they ba- basically their their solution to all of these is look None of these countries are going to come and attack us or destroy their relationships with us mm-hmm. because they trade with us and they've got other problems to worry about with each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is just a silly thing. These are phantom dangers, basically. We don't yeah. need to worry about these other countries coming and hurting us because either they're our friends from war or trade or they've got enough on their plate already that they don't want to mess with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they're saying... These phantom fears that the Federalists are putting out there, these things we need to deal with, we don't need to deal with them because they're not really problems. And as I, you know, I taxed Hamilton for spinning problem. I think you can accuse the phantom Federalists there of the same thing of, yeah, for the time being, they're not attacking you. Yeah, for now. But yeah. if you never pay them back, <laughs> I think within 100 years or so, Something's gonna they might make, it might make their, their to-do list yeah. to do something about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's unprecedented in history that countries who are owed a lot of money by other countries do something about it. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and then I think we, you know, I kind of t- touched on it. Uh, he, he, he closes out by, well, I, you know, hold on, I'm sorry. I don't want to skip over one other thing. He goes into this, this idea of bias again. And, and Hamilton is saying, look, you guys need a way, like, I'm, I'm biased I'm by Hamilton's saying he's biased. He's saying that I'm not going to hide that from you. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not biased. I'm going to put it out front. What the viewpoint I'm saying. Put it out front. What my viewpoint, my standings are, and I think that the weight and the that the merits of the U.S. Constitution will stand on its own, regardless of my bias. So when all these guys in the Anti-Federalist Papers say, "Oh, he's you know he's biased because he's writing this way," you know he's saying, "Look, of course I'm biased. This is my opinion. I'm not going to hide from you." But, you know, look past the bias. He's basically saying, look, how can I be an intelligent person who's critically looking at this issue? What kind of person would I be if I looked at it so hard and thought about it so hard? And, and, and on the other side, I had no opinion. And no opinion. Right. So, but he's saying... He's Especially saying, when the issue is so momentous. Yeah, this is, I mean, in his mind, the way he frames it is, is one of the great moments of mankind. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this, is gonna, this is going to dictate whether or not... Um, he says it right at the beginning... Uh, whether, Basically, the fate yeah. of democracy in, in the whole. Yeah, and whether or not... He's not entirely here. wrong. No, he's not. He goes, well, at the very beginning, whether societies of men are capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend upon their political... for their political constitutions on accident and force. And otherwise, you know, can mankind actually peacefully and reasonably through reflection and conversation govern themselves, or are they only ever going to just change hands after one war after another? And and you know and that's and he said this is this is you know epic. It's in another one's ideas that flows through. I think Il- Lincoln Lincoln probably said it best in regards to the Civil War about whether or not it's always just true that might will make right or if right can can make might. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and of course Lincoln took the latter view, and I think that in its own way that's what what Hamill is arguing is. Look, always in history and before, it's the government's just dependent on whoever's the strongest argument can impose their government. The strongest army can impose their government yeah whereas now we are using the power again of reason deliberation and you know mental rightness mm-hmm. to think about what's best not just what is best for the person who has the strongest army which is a good point i think one thing we should do yeah. before we close out because again despite my admiration or scorn to whatever degree of uh, Mr. Hamilton's spin within this argument, it does again at the end come down to this is number one, it is a table of contents, and he yeah. lists it out. So I think we should go through each one of those uh, things he lists out 
uh, as what he's going to talk about in the rest of the papers uh, that are really sort of uh, some dense writing. He may just put them in plain language. So let's okay. start, start so, with... Uh, so first topic here, uh, then. The utility of the union to your political prosperity. And that's that's to be covered in... It ended up being covered in, in Federalist Papers number 2 through number 14. Mm-hmm. And there I, just, I take him basically... He's in, in saying that, he's basically saying, hey, the first thing we got to look at here is... Is the existing government under the Articles of Federation, is it getting the job done? Yeah. Is it, it is it doing what it's supposed to do? Are you better off than you were under it? Is it, you know, or is it, or you can think something better is out there? That's really all that means. Okay. Is, is the Articles of Federation good enough or do you need something better? That's a starting point. Next topic he, he proposes, uh, which is covered then in numbers 15 through numbers 22, the insufficiency of the present confederation to preserve that union. And, and and there again, he's saying, I'm going to highlight all the ways in which the articles of confederation are going to fail. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and that, that whatever we've got going now is going to collapse in upon itself uh, at some point down the line. I think that's really where he, he has the anti-federalists um, in a hard position because a lot of their arguments seem to be, hey, things aren't so bad. Yeah. You know, and all these things, you know, the... People aren't going to attack us. Uh, these countries are our friends. We're getting stuff done. But that his point, too, basically is, is what we have now going to be good enough if things aren't smooth sailing in the future? When our nation faces challenges, are the Articles of Confederation going to be good enough? I think that's what it boils down to. Yeah. Uh, third topic, then. The necessity of a government at least equally energetic with the one proposed to the attainment of this object. Covering numbers 23 through Federalist Paper number 36. A strong tendency of the Anti-Federalists, something they seem to be arguing for, at least implicitly, is it's better to have local control through the states. It's more important. It's better to have more power to the states because if you disagree with something they do or if you'd like to see things a different way, you're closer to it. You're able to fix it more than to deal with some distant federal government. And I think Hamilton there is saying, look... At a, at a bare minimum, we need at least as much federal power as we have under the Articles of Federation, but probably more. Yeah. Whereas the anti-federalists on the other side is saying, talking about sending power downward more to the state and local level. Okay. And, and I mean, the next topic then, the conformity of the proposed Constitution to the two principles of Republican government. Um you know, and that's numbers 37 through 84. So really the bulk. Mm-hmm. I mean, two, so what do you think that's thirds. trying to focus on there? Um, really all the ways in which the constitution is going to work for you. Right. Well, no, you know, like, I, like, I, I feel like it's also a bit of a semantic game of yeah. like, what does it mean to be a Republican government? Yeah. It was, you know, it's funny cause it's still an argument they have now about, well, the United States is democracy or Republic is people playing word games as if the defining words going to win them an argument. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of founding fathers seem to acknowledge the idea that, you know, even in the Constitution, we didn't directly elect senators originally. They were mm-hmm. elected by states. Um, that direct democracy unrelated by everybody could be a bad thing. It could be that un- unruly mob. So is this Constitution still a government by the best and brightest, according to Republican principles as opposed to direct democracy? Okay. And does it... Does it live up to the best we want to do under what it means to be Republican? Okay. Uh, Small r. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it's an analogy to your own state constitution, covered in number 85. Or at least what's supposed to be covered in number 85. What are your thoughts? I think one of the ways of trying to win the debate is by saying... Because people are predisposed to be alright with what they're already used to. Yeah. They're always afraid of change. I think he's basically trying to say, he's telegraphing that one of his arguments is going to be, look, this federal government plan that we're putting out there, it's really pretty much the same in structure to what your state is already using and what you're used to. It's not really that different. We're just taking what you already like and supersizing it. (laughs) It's going to be even more big and awesome. Um, 
When a large fry isn't enough, yeah, have a biggie. This is this <laughs> so, is the big gulp of awesome government. The big gulp of, of government. Yeah, so that's I good mean, to know. If, <laughs> if you like orange, if you like some kind of orange soft drink, this will be even more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that that he's trying to win the argument by saying this is basically what we already used to. It's not some big scary new thing. Yeah, and, and to kind of put people at ease. Exactly. With the idea of and, you know, there's a point of like uh, some of the larger states and how they structured their governments. You know, the initial plan for the Constitution was the Virginia Plan. Mm-hmm. You know, modeled after uh, largely you know how Virginia governed itself. Okay. Uh, and last, the last topic, uh, the additional security which its adoption will afford to the preservation of that species of government to liberty and prosperity. Um, and there again, you know, it's saying, hey, look, doing it this way is only going to strengthen uh, the chances of our survival and of you individuals prosper uh, to prosper in the future and to, to be free and to enjoy yourselves uh, and enjoy and enjoy your lives. Yeah, and, and, and so he's saying like it's it's going to work on a national level, and by working to secure and strengthen the national union as a whole, we're all going to benefit. I think he's using he's doing that. He's using, but I think he's using, he's using the carrot and the stick. Mm-hmm. He's positive saying that, but oh, this is going to be great. It's it's what you're used to. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. Mm-hmm. But he's also implicitly trying to scare people with those phantoms that the. Oh, yeah. Antifederals we're talking about and Antifederals number two of look not only will this be good if we don't do this horrible things can happen mm-hmm. you know other European countries are going to come in and they're going to try to turn, each, turn us against each other your individual state legislatures and in trying to inter- pursue state interests are going to create conflict between the states does he go so far you? to say that I mean we'll find out later on but I mean no I not it not here at least not here. and we'll save it for later whether yeah. that develops but. I think he's telegraphing here that... At least an intent to maybe touch on that. He's sort of laying the foundation for, again, he, they're all Renaissance in, you know, in, um, Enlightenment thinkers. Mm-hmm. And they are all from that tradition of you know, the great you know, philosophers of social contract and government of what you need to do. And this part really, I think, is going to harken back to you know, the Leviathan. Mm-hmm. The, the the Hobbes Leviathan the idea of look in a state of nature if ever if there is no law but but what an individual can force upon another person then that is horrible that's a chaotic state of anarchy mm-hmm. it's bad for everybody and so he's he's laying he's making he's laying the groundwork for the same argument that Hobbes did in the Leviathan of if you want to have any kind of safety in your life and stability in your life. You've got to surrender some of your freedom to the Leviathan, to the powerful government that will protect you in exchange in, in exchange for safety and stability. You're going to give up a little, little freedom that you have and a bit of independence in the state governments, but in the end, it'll be worth it. And again, I don't want to go too far ahead here and talk mm-hmm. about other papers, but I think that's sort of what he's saying between the lines. And that's that's something that uh, is going to be an ongoing debate between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists mm-hmm. about, you know, the appeal to fear mm-hmm. versus the appeal to unre- you know, to absolute freedom. Okay. Okay. So I think that's going to be an ongoing debate throughout. Um, but uh, yeah, in this in this opener, I really think uh, reading between the lines of Hamilton is the most interesting thing of how he's sort of trying to define. The argument, uh, but as you said earlier, uh, he's really good at uh, right away. It's clear to the reader what he's wanting to do. You know, this is the answer to all your problems. This constitution we've drafted. You know, we've thought long and hard about it. It needs to happen, and you need to approve it. Whereas in the first two anti-federalist papers. You know they're they're throwing rocks at the Federalists. Mm-hmm. They're saying this is a bad thing, but they're having a hard time because they are having to acknowledge a little bit that some of the thing there's some points that the Federalists the Federalists have made about the shortcomings of the Articles of Federation, but they can't really answer them. You know they talk about they admit that there have been problems with um, the ability of people to you know conduct commerce uh, and. Um, 
to pay public debts. And the way the Anti-Federalists, and I'm referring primarily here to Anti-Federalists too, they, uh, they basically just blame the, it's a popular thing to do, they blame the Congress. They say, look, it's not that the form of government's bad, it's just that there's these horrible people who made bad decisions. Even then. And we'll get better, yeah, even then, <laughs> he said, look, everything, yeah, we can't play public debts, yeah, that's a bad thing. But uh, in federal and in Federalist too, they say the only the reason that's the case is they didn't do they were dragging their feet and they didn't sell the public lands in a timely fashion. If they would have mm-hmm. done that right in the first place, we'd have no public debts. Yeah. So just elect better people and there won't be any problems, you know. Uh, but uh, it does, you know. It seems it, it's not an argument that's really powerfully made, mm-hmm. um, and. You know they don't really spend too much time on, but they they even the anti-federalists seem to acknowledge that there are weaknesses in the articles. And I think that's one of the reasons we'll see throughout the anti-federalist papers that they fragment on their solution as to what on how to respond to the federalists. Yeah, amend them, keep with keep the articles, replace the articles, but with something different. They can't seem to agree on what the answer is. I think that hurts them. No, obviously. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, again, they uh, lost. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The Constitution was ratified. In well uh, advancing their cause. And the, well, I, yeah. I, I guess that's a, a matter of, of seeing things, too, because yeah. the, the ones who just were okay with the Constitution to, you know, or weren't, didn't hate it, but they felt that they needed a Bill of Rights, yeah. they got what they wanted. Well, they true. got a Bill they of did. Rights. It's the ones who wanted. I think the big losers out of the the fight between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists mm-hmm. were the ones who most strongly were were sort of the Shays Rebellion crowd, sort of the mm-hmm. the I, the Jeffersonian idea of the United States in the long term is primarily going to be a country of you know small farmers who. Are going to you know not owe anybody anything, not having much connection to you know the levers of power, and they're going to decide things on a much you know small d democratic fashion of just mass voting on everything, and there won't be a strong bureaucracy or strong centralized power. A lot of the power will be, you know, within walking distance of them. You know, they will go to their local county seat, and that will have a lot of power, and the and then the state will have a lot of power and. You know, the closer the power could be to the to the people, the people, the more Jeffersonian I think it is, and I think they were the ones who lost because, in in the Constitution passing and the the Federalists winning the debate, um, you know, that sort of set the set the direction for the next two hundred years or so mm-hmm. in the centralized direction. Hmm. So I think we're getting po- near the point where we can like start uh, wrapping up. Any yeah. final thoughts? I. No, really. I mean, I think this it speaks for itself. This first paper it really sets sets the framework, sets the the, the Hamilton's uh, outline for the debate, uh, and like we talked about, he sets the playing field. Um, and he really, I think, paints the anti-federalists into a bit of a corner in the sense that because what what I don't know if I mentioned this or just before in the other episode, um, uh, Hamilton, Madison, Jay released a torrent of papers. Um, 85 over roughly nine months. And that's a whirlwind, uh, especially for the time, of all this passionate argument and thought that the anti-federalists who can't even decide on what sort of counteroffer they want to make are now forced to to respond to, uh, you know, several arguments um, They're certainly not week, shaping the debate. Per week. They, yeah. they, they, they are... They are Literally running around, the anti-federalists seem to be running around and just trying to put out the next fire one after the other. They can't, they can't regroup and actually uh, uh, frame a, a, a cohesive response. I agree with what you said. I think that one thing I came away with with Federalist One is just the a lot. It's it, it's going to be something interesting to watch, especially in Hamilton's future uh, writings in the Federalist Papers of how much he really. Uh, skillfully employs like spin and reading between the lines logic stuff that readers will pick up mm-hmm. but um, that on the surface seems magnanimous to the other side he's really good at shaping the debate and laying groundwork 
And he sort of sets the terms each time for each debate that the anti-federalists sort of have to fall into or choose to fall into. Mm-hmm. They didn't seem to w- find a way to combat it. Um, and I think one thing that would be really amusing to Hamilton at the time, and I have to give him credit for it, is that uh, you know he and his and those the fellow people he's uh, debating with the anti-federalists, those you know uh, highly educated uh, upper middle class um, attendees of all those fancy prestigious colleges in the United States in the early early history, you know they are all. Him and the people he's arguing against, again, children of these great uh, European philosophers, the Locke, the Rousseau, uh, Hobbes, etc. It's like a, a secret language they all speak. Okay. And so when he's saying some of these things, he's drawing some language, sort of either paraphrase or directly from uh, these writers and using it to insult the hell out of the other side. <laughs> and it's got to just have satisfied him to no end because... Here he is insulting these individuals in a way that they're going to understand. They've just been insulted. Yeah. But most people aren't, you know, not gonna pick who haven't up. read a lot of, you know. The average person picking up the New York the Times. The average person's not going to get yeah. They're going to seem nice to him. Yeah. But, like, for example. Um, do, we, we don't, do we see an episode of that in the first yeah. paper? Because I, when I said, for example, the, the. The uh, the eulogy of Julius Caesar, for some for example, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. that was something that was probably widely about. read at the time. Yeah, probably every one of those guys. Again, they didn't have YouTube and TV and everything else. Yeah, they read the classics. They read, you know, stuff like Shakespeare, philosophers, mm-hmm. and stuff. That was a common language they all shared. And so when he was doing that to them mm-hmm. and throwing that kind of, you know, throwing those insults at them, like yeah. characterizing them as seeming to come off with nice, but being you know ro- digging a knife into him rhetorically, yeah. they knew. Because they've read it. They've all read that. So they knew what was happening, so but they couldn't was, do anything about it. They were sitting around going, oh, no, you didn't. Right. So <laughs> he's basically, again, to, yeah. he they got served by uh, got served. by Alexander Hamilton. And it's just, it, we'll have to see in the future Anti-Federalist and Federalist Papers. In, in the highbrow 1780s way. Yeah, they, <laughs> they got eloquently served. served yes. And um, I think that's going to be a theme of his throughout. Yeah. So, okay, well, let's let's wrap it up here. It looks like we're getting close to time. Um uh, the next uh, episodes we're gonna be, John Jay. We'll have to see if he can John live Jay. up to the uh, smack talk of uh, Alexander Hamilton if he keeps the threshold high. Well, I don't know. He he certainly started out of the gate strong, but then faded away as far as his participation in this effort. Um, well, the man got injured. All right. Well, thanks for joining <laughs> us, everyone. We'll see you in episode two. All right. See you soon. Thanks.